Did I tell you about Mayonnaise Jesus? Mayonnaise Jesus? should introduce myself. Um, I'm Corin Black, a humble half-demon, and folks around Baltimore call me the Devil's Runt. Here we go, finally moving again. How do you feel about methamphetamines? You know, Devil's blood don't make you a devil. Under the Shroud, fantasy, noir, and horror from Baltimore's sin-soaked streets. Find creator Ian Humphrey on Twitter at FictionalIan. Welcome to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. This is a true crime and horror podcast that brings (laughs) true stories and not-so-true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. I'm Alexandria (laughs) Youngray with my lovely (laughs) co-host, Sunshine Vellon. Hi guys, <laughs> I'm sorry. I I just I, I was trying. I don't know. My impulses took over, and I was sitting looking at my camera, like squinching at my face, and ah, oh, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> this weird thing with my tongue, trying to get you to uh, fuck up the intro again, and I oh, just okay. fucked myself over. Is all that happened? Oh, okay. Okay. So sorry, everyone. All right. Mm. What did I want to do before we started? I wanted to. I wanted to give a shout out to the people that have been super supportive last week. I think that's very nice <laughs> because that was just really nice. Yeah. So so sunshine lost her lovely doggy. It was very sad. It was very sad because I mean you know having a fur baby is a family member you know, mm-hmm. and we're not going to get too much into it because that's sad. sad. But you know we made a post about it last week so people would know what was going on, and we got a like we got a wonderful pour in of love from fellow podcasters and listeners, and I just wanted to say how appreciative we are to all of the people that reached out. You know, there was a bunch of people that like reblogged us or retweeted us or whatever and mm-hmm. and wrote their their condolences and then a bunch of people that reached out personally. I wanted to thank Mongoose Ryan from Instagram. He's one of our best listeners. He's always been super supportive. He reached out and I wanted to thank the folks from Tone Deaf. Thanks guys. Who you know what? I'll just I'll just link them in our show notes and stuff because they they're just really sweet and i just i don't know it just really touched my heart when i was just chatting them up and they were like hey how's sunshine doing i know that's so sweet my heart yeah oh my my soft and and tender heart (laughs) right that's so i'm glad i'm glad any like i'm glad i had i appreciate people's definitely like empathy and concern for sure and I'm also glad that you were the one seeing the messages and the questions mm-hmm. and not me. And fielding because, them for you. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, definitely it's one of those sneaky things where you can't talk about it or think about it too much if you want to maintain mm-hmm. your composure. Yeah. Yeah. So, basically, you know, I'm the one that does most of the social media. So, people would send their condolences and I would hit up Sunshine and be like, hey, 
somebody said a nice thing. <laughs> yeah, and I'd be like, and that was and that, that was, was how so I communicated. Nice. So that yeah. Sunshine didn't have to randomly get messages of like, hey, remember that sad thing? It was more like Alex hit up Sunshine and be like, hey, people are being nice to you. <laughs> yeah, that's something that I guess you would call it an approach. Like, I went to work the next day and I was just was like, you know, luckily it was a sweatpants day because it was the day I teach gym. But uh-huh. uh, I was just so exhausted. Like when your eyes are just deep red and then they're puffed so much that it's mm-hmm. hard to like keep them open. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, no, you know, I couldn't lie or hide it. And I was eyes. also... And I was also too, like, just drained to even lie. And so the kids asked me what was wrong. And I was just like, my dog died. Like, there we go. And some of them were really nice about it and sweet about it. And some of them, I'm just like, you're a tactless bastard. (laughs) Like, one student I'm very close with had drawn. Teenagers. Yeah. One of them had drawn a picture of Lala on the board before it even happened. And she was just like, oh. And then she asked me for a marker and she went up to the board and like put a halo on her and like changed her feet to little ghost, oh, like to little ghost lines. Oh, I can't. Yeah. Oh, She's oh. one of my favorites anyway. Oh, that's really darling. And it hurts me. <laughs> She's one of my favorites anyway. And so I thought that was really sweet. Like that was probably the most respectful way that somebody, it felt like she was no, being very, was, yeah, it was great. Sweet. And then I had that's another student sweet. who like, you know, later on that same day, just like, being socially tone deaf and wanting attention and wanting to have a conversation instead of doing his schoolwork came and sat at my desk and was like, so did your dog die of like natural causes or, and I was just, I looked at him. cannibalism kid? (laughs) No, I actually really liked him. He's gone. Okay. (laughs) He wouldn't have done that. (laughs) No, I just told him, I was like, that's a really weird thing to just randomly say to somebody. And it's not very cool. Like you shouldn't do that. Just so you know, I'm not going to talk about that anyway. Whatever. Yeah. I didn't mean to get off on a rant about oh, tone yeah. deaf high schoolers not knowing how to deal with yeah. dog death, but they're going to be saying tone deaf a lot today because we're dealing with acting stuff. Mm-hmm. So yes. this is a good this is a good shout out episode for our tone deaf friends. <laughs> <laughs> Only one of them is tone deaf. <laughs> Only one of them. Is tone deaf. The, the other one is a wonderful actor. A wonderful actor. <laughs> <sighs> Who, who randomly sings for the show and it's actually really dar- darling. <laughs> they, they will write songs that are usually to the music of uh, whatever uh, musical they're discussing. Mm-hmm. They're always really fun. Oh, I really, I particularly liked the Jesus is a Train song. Jesus is a Train. I, I can't even, I don't even think we can get into this, Alex. I want to know all about Train Jesus, but... Okay, so they did an episode on Starlight mm-hmm. Express, mm-hmm. which is... Like a weird bastard child of one of our more famous music musical theater writers. Mm-hmm. And it is literally Jesus is a train. It makes no sense. You should listen to the episode. They will talk okay. even more about how no sense it make. Okay. <laughs> I like it. You gotta you gotta get your giggles where you can. Hell yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we kind of talked about it before we started recording. We're definitely going to talk about it during recording. But that weird Dadaist humor that is millennials of like, we're going to take this very serious subject and completely absurdify it so that we can express our nihilism. Right. So we can cope with our (laughs) hopelessness. Yeah. Yep. Pretty much. Coping with our hopelessness through slapstick and straight up goofy humor. That's exactly what we're getting into. Mm-hmm. So, 
Speaking of Jesus, <laughs> would you like to get into Greek theater? That sounds like some sort of weird gay pickup line that I don't quite understand. <laughs> would you like to get into Greek theater? Oh, no, that's exactly the perfect gay pickup line. Do you remember the, the nerd your mom jokes that we wrote in high school? Mm-hmm. Your mom is like a Greek tragedy. All the action happens backstage. All the action happens backstage. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. That's so funny. Oh, I love yeah. that. I love their nerd mom jokes. Those are really good. We got some serial killer ones, so I guess I'll drop them in the episodes as they happen. Yeah, do it. Oh, and they will be so brutal and naughty, but, you know, it'll be fun. All right, I guess we can actually talk about Greek theater now. Let's actually talk about Greek theater now. All right, so we we talked about tricksters Mm -hmm. and how they're kind of the dawn of the clown. And now we're going to talk about basically the dawn of performance. Awesome. Love it. Um, And how, you know, the dawn of like, I mean, there's no such thing as the dawn of performance. People are performers. We like to show things to others and like. Right. I mean, we have oral story traditions dating back mm-hmm. to the beginning of being humans. Yeah. So. Like when we started talking, we started performing yeah. and probably before then, because like, look at monkeys. Yeah. And dogs. You know, but like when we get into kind of, I guess, classical theater, mm. that's kind of where we get into um, a more traceable form of the Dawn of the Clown. Okay. You know, so like we talked about basically where the archetype come from. Now we're going to talk about where, I guess, stage performance, where performance as a sanctioned thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i like it i like it you know how that kind of becomes the ye old clown right yes yes so that's today's episode so greek theater made of tragedy and comedy right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. greek theater dates back to approximately 600 bce okay and the the origin of tragedy is debated but there's a few reigning theories. Okay. Uh, one of the most common ones is that it is derived from a performative worship of Dionysus oh. in a sung ritual sacrifice of go- goats called Tragodia. Tragodia. Yeah. And Dionysus is the great god of wine and theater and all of that jazz. Mm-hmm. So he's actually essentially another kind of the trickster gods that we were talking about last episode. You know? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. He's the god of drunken debauchery. Frivolity and merriment. And and performance. And, um, you know, there's actually a really strong connection between our trickster gods and performance and acting in theater. Uh, with the drinking and the acting and the losing your inhibitions and breaking societal norms and mm-hmm. performance and you do you see where I'm going yes, here? Yes, I do. I'm just getting way excited. I'm ramping up. <laughs> good, 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 good. So, you know, we've got this like what we talked about last time where we were like, these are the people 
you know, the tricksters, the archetype of the tricksters who are allowed to break societal norms. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily make them sca- like scary, but it does make them at least a little bit sinister. Uh, or unsettling, yeah. Yeah, unsettling. There's something kind of off about the just candor with which they break societal norms. Yeah. And and that's, you know, that's really a, a foundation for performance mm-hmm. as far as our classical notion of performance goes. Yes. Um, and then there's also the aspect of dressing up. And Being something that you're not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in the old Greek theater model, because of the huge stage areas, because mm-hmm. these were huge public events for, right. you know, literally potentially thousands of people and at least probably hundreds. Yes. Um, you're looking at being dressed up extravagantly with a big emphasis on extra. Extra. Yes. So you get the exaggerated movements and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Masks, costumes, wild gesticulations. Wild gesticulations. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like we talked about this last time as well with the like the big, broad, gaudy movements. Mm-hmm. I think we might have. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's kind of our foundation into where theater starts because it starts with tragedies now tragedies covered serious subject matter and they usually had a moral dilemma with a choice between a bad ending and a worse ending (sighs) although they didn't have to have a shit ending they just Mm -hmm. needed to deal with serious subjects but like there's a lot of stories where it's like well i i mean like um oedipus Mm mm-hmm you know, where, like, he fucks his mom, he kills his dad, he cuts his own eyes out. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's a shit ending or a more shit ending. Yep. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and you get other other tragedies that are of this, of this notion where y- you're, it's a lot like horror movies. Mm-hmm. There's a. And this is because I've seen way too many horror movies, but there's definitely a point in the horror movie where something so bad has happened that I can tell that every single character is going to die. Because there's no coming back from that. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Point um, of no return. Yep. So it's like somebody accidentally murders somebody. Right. Is a really common one. Or somebody sleeps with somebody that's really fucking socially disgusting to sleep with you know oedipus yeah so so shit like that where there's just like a you cannot return to a normal life after this that is the crossing over point of nope everybody's gonna die yep exactly so you get yeah so these are kind of you know that's a modern example of the tragedy moral dilemma where it's shit ending or shittier ending Mm -hmm. but Technically speaking, they just had to deal with serious subjects. Okay. And then there's actually another play that people don't talk about much because it's not really common anymore. Uh Uh-huh. But they were called satyrs. And Mm -hmm. those were mythological plays covering Greek mythology. So they 
were technically a little more fun, but they were also technically religious in nature. Right, okay. Because Greek mythology in the time of ancient Greeks was religion. Right. Yeah. Um, but those, basically, there'd be like, um, what am I thinking of? There'd be contests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what I'm thinking of? Is that the word I'm looking for? Well, like, I don't know what you'd call it, but like kind of the same as the origin of the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where they would have, you know, great playwrights come and show their plays. And they'd mm-hmm. have like maybe three tragedies and a satyr. Oh, okay. And okay. Those would be like the thing that they presented to mm-hmm. be judged. Yeah. Okay. And so those were the ye oldest forms of theater. Okay. And then the origin of comedy is actually like totally lost. Like they don't act. There's there's not even like a debate over where it's from. It's just like mm. oh, as far as comedy's origins, mm-hmm. interesting. You know, like like tragedy is like oh, it was probably this weird like song where you sacrifice a goat called Tragodia, where like that's kind of like oh yeah, that makes sense. Comedy is like mm. yeah. But it seems to be early performance of dick jokes. Great. Yeah. Wonderful. So, so that just that just makes me really happy because like basically, you know, we aren't we we are not the generation that invented dick jokes. If you well, look back not. at like old Greek artifacts, there are absolutely pots with like ridiculous phallic symbols put on them that were a hundred percent meant to be hilarious. Really? Oh yeah, totally. Okay, okay. And so, and so, ye old comedy, in some way, probably at least a little bit, got its start in dick jokes. Great. But the play didn't have to be specifically humorous; it just had to cover trivial subjects. Uh, this, this, this relate. Yes, this relates to <laughs> the stuff that I've been learning about and nerding over all day today. It's great. Because you've been writing a play-related lesson plan. Yes, I have. Yay. Yes. The, well, and they're specifically where, uh, according, tragic comedy, according to Britannica, oh. is incorporating both tragic and comic elements. And the Roman dramatist Plautus in the second century BC, uh, oh, that's when, he, that's when the phrase came from. Okay. In which gods, okay. so the whole idea is it's a play in which gods and men, masters and slaves, reverse the roles traditionally assigned to them. Gods and heroes acting in comic burlesque and slaves adopting tragic dignity. The startling mm. innovation may be seen in Plautus's Amphimetron. Anyway. Okay. So, so that yeah, that's what relate. makes, that's what takes a comedy, a, tra- a play or a work that's basically a tragedy and gives it comedic elements is that whole mm. like role reversal or that kind of thing. Stepping outside right. the cultural well, norms. Well, that, that kind of works for... I'm going to get into it right now. So so due to the nature of the whole trivial subject matter, right? Mm-hmm. Comedy playwrights were able to address more serious and political subject matter. Right. Through a trivial lens. Which, which we're going to get into a ton in Jesters. Right. Which also does connect and circle back to what you were talking about with millennial humor. Once again. Totally. Totally. But yeah, basically, it's nuanced. Mm -hmm. Another way to look at it is that tragedy covers these huge subject matters. They're they're, they're life and death. They're they're morality. They're Mm -hmm. good and evil, right? And so it's like battles of the gods, battles of kings, battles of, you know, huge and important to everyone's subject matters. Mm -hmm. 
and comedy covers more personal matters. Which is why comedies had more regular people as characters. They had slaves as characters. They had bakers and and homemakers and you know random common folk as the actors or as the characters. This is something I also learned about in regards to comedy today that I found very interesting. And this is more about who is telling the story and how you know whether it's like first person, second person, like how much we know about uh, an individual character. But with dramas or tragedies, you're much more likely to have it be a story arc that follows one character through all of these like trials and tribulations. Even if they're yes. bigger things, it's still one character. Whereas with comedies, basically in order to maintain that level of removal, even in a tragic situation, you're usually following multiple characters at a time. That way they're still able to cover like more interesting and or deep content, but you still have that like... You're not getting so attached to one character that you can't also laugh at them. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. We're going to just seep all of this in millennial humor because like... Because that's how it is. That's our life. I mean, that is our life. We are millennials. Uh, Hashtag. But... (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag we are millennials. I just did it. I literally just did a absurdist... Like... Dadaist political humor millennial mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. by just saying hashtag. Yep. Oh God. Yep. Ugh. I hate analyzing myself from an academic lens. That's yep. weird. And then you realize how much of what you do is meta because of that. <laughs> like, so oh fuck. Meta. <laughs> <laughs> meta is so annoying. A joke within a joke it within a so joke. Annoying. And that's like our existence as well. Yeah. Nothing is but straightforward. I mean, yeah. So, so this is something that we talked about a ton in our trickster episode, but something that I really do appreciate about comedy in its right, because tragedy was so serious, they were actually essentially barred from talking politics. You know, they were like, all right, matters of life and death, morality, we're not going to bring in. You can be philosophical, but not political. Yeah. But with comedy, because it was considered trivial... They right. were able to talk. I mean, they would. You can literally... openly discuss serious issues if you trivialize it first. Mm-hmm. They would. They would literally like the playwrights of comedies in ancient Greek times would talk about the politicians they were making fun of who were in attendance of the play. Right, kind of like a roast. Yeah, yeah, and because of the nature of it, you know, kind of like a roast, it was considered a relatively socially acceptable thing Mm -hmm. you know yeah and around so so you brought up the tragic comedy thing Mm -hmm. in 200 bce so around 100 bce this legacy becomes the new roman art form of pantomime oh pantomimes pantomime so, so I'm going to get into kind of pantomime versus mime, because those actually still exist in our modern day. Yes. And is super important to clowning. To clowning. Clowning. So from what I can tell, pantomime and mime are essentially a nonverbal equal to comedy and tragedy. Okay. Although they appear to have somewhat swapped roles over time okay so pantomime began as a serious dramatic 
dance to orchestral and choral music. Okay. Using masks to distinguish characters, but also blocking the ability for the performer to express with facial features. Facial oh, features, interesting. Which uh, is also something we talked about in right. our last episode. Yeah, yeah. Was Exaggerating thing. your facial features. Making it so that you could see what they were doing, but also blocking what they were doing yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And then mime began as the sillier version of that. But it didn't require the masks. Although the first recorded mime was all the way back in in 467 BCE. Dang. Yeah. Quiet, funny boys. So now modern pantomime is British. Mm -hmm. Mostly. And it's mostly a Christmas tradition. Okay. Of children's plays where the performers will dress ridiculously Mm -hmm. and make... You know, dumb jokes and slapstick comedy to tell mostly fairy tales. To tell them, but they're not speaking, right? I think. Oof, I'm actually not sure because I've never seen a British pantomime. Okay. I just know that, like, if you look up pantomime mm-hmm. and you look at like modern examples, you'll see that. And I don't know if they speak or not. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then modern mimes, while not inherently serious, are definitely more of a serious dramatic endeavor. And often are inherently serious. It's just that sometimes they're also super funny, right? Right. And miming is like a weirdly serious worldwide thing. Really? Yeah. There's like a international mime organization and like March 22nd is International Mime Day. (laughs) And... I don't know. It's it's just it is still considered like a very proper art form that people learn as part of the Let's, like dramatic education. Um as part of a dramatic education. I don't okay. think everybody gets lessons in miming, but you absolutely can. <laughs> yeah. And let me give you some examples and it's going to upset you. Okay. So If mimes make you uncomfortable, as they should, (laughs) let me list some off for you. Blue Man Group. I didn't consider them to be mimes, but I guess they don't talk. But if you think about it, they, they, yeah. They don't talk. They are all physical. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, this blew my mind. Like going through this list and recognizing people, I was like, Okay. (laughs) Dick Van Dyke. Think about his physical comedy. Hmm. (laughs) Gotta look it up now. Yes. Need a video. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, think about just what he did in Mary Poppins with his ridiculous leg stuff. You're totally right. I didn't even click on a video yet. I just saw the thumbnail and you're right. You're totally (laughs) right. That's nuts. I would never even. That's broadening my understanding of what miming is, even from the, Mm -hmm. you know, what you just told me and the definitions you gave me. I was still not seeing the full scope of it. Yeah. I mean, basically, I think like your classic, like, I am a mime Mm -hmm. mimes have to like not speak. But you can use your learning from being a mime. Right, miming to techniques. Use <laughs> your mimery. Really, 
yeah, use these really fascinating physical forms of expression and humor. Rowan Atkinson. Right. Mr. Bean. Who is Mr. Bean. Yeah. He's super, super mimey. <laughs> the mime off. I love it. Charlie Chaplin was a mime. See, and once again, I wouldn't automatically go to silent film stars because you wouldn't. I guess you'd have to be. In order to do well as a silent film star, you'd have to be a mime. But I never considered that. I always just felt like, I guess I always just assumed that the approach to acting at that time would be the exact same. But it was just like the production was missing something. Not that the actual uh, task and acting style would be different, but it has to be. Yeah. Well, and also, like, I do actually fully believe that, like, miming is still considered. I fully believe. The world fully believes actors and performers. Miming is to this day still considered like a very serious art form mm -hmm. because it is actually very physically taxing. Like if you right. think about all of the skills that you need to learn, it is a weird dance form, you know? It's a weird dance form. Okay. It's like dance acting. Acting. And it's very strange. It's very difficult. And you do have to learn a lot of stuff. But it's a really, really, really cool way to physically express complicated things. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And so there are random mimes punctuating our history. Okay. I'm into it. Of, of like famous actors that we know. Uh, another example is Doug Jones. Why don't I recognize that name? You don't recognize the name? No, but I should. I know oh. I recognize that I should. Okay. He is a common monster player. So he was the eyeball guy from oh, Pan's yep. Labyrinth. Yep. Okay. He was in Wreck as the creepy old person that was living in the attic. He has been the ice cream man in a different Guillermo del Toro. He... Just he tends to play big, long, spooky guys because he's big, long, and spooky. Okay, but Great. he also is a mime. Lovely, which enables his physical acting, mm -hmm. which again is super, super awesome as an example of how this all relates into horror because he is such a horror icon. Okay, awesome. He's always the long, lanky monster, like always him and Javier Botet, who is basically Spanish Doug Jones. Oh, Spanish. Nice. Did yeah. either of them play the uh, Baduk Baduk? The Babadook? Oh, the Babadook, yeah. Not the Baduk Baduk. The Baduk Baduk! <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. Don't keep that in I there. I don't think either of them played the Babadook. That was a, I believe, actually, a New Zealand show. I know it was filmed in New Zealand, but I just wasn't sure. If no. In fact, actually, I think I said Doug Jones played the old person in Wreck, mm -hmm. but it was actually Quarantine, which is the American version of Wreck. Oh. In Wreck, the old person in the attic was Javier Botet. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Isn't that great? Yes. So, so yeah. No, that's a bunch of, like, weird examples of mimes that are still present today. Nice. And, I don't know, it's just a cool thing to think about that's also kind of weird and creepy. It is kind of weird and creepy, but still kind of yeah. cool as well. You're right. Yeah. Also, Dick Van Dyke. Also Dick Van Dyke. Like, what the fuck? I mean, whatever. Gotta love him. That's great. Yeah. All right, so just a real quick stop back in Rome before we move on to medieval Renaissance Europe, because we're actually jumping a lot of time. Mm, lovely. 
So I only found this in one source, but it was definitely an academic source, and I wasn't actually looking for it. It was just a thing that came up in this book. Mm -hmm. So Rome would occasionally purge actors for their outspokenness. Okay, that makes sense. Which led to a dispersion of traveling comics around Europe. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. For me, that kind of invokes the imagery of the wandering fool. Yeah, or the wandering minstrel. Yeah. I've always heard that. Yeah. Yeah. And I do a little bit wonder if that's literally where it came from. Right. Is Was the these dispersion of comics. Entertainers that wandering entertainers as a result of whatever political pressure or mm-hmm. fascist ruling. Yeah. Kind of makes you wonder. Kind of makes you wonder. That's maybe a thing. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. That's not necessarily related to horror or anything. That's just like an interesting historical thing that I was like, that's neat. Yeah. And kind of fits in with what I know about the jester. I like it. I think it's fitting. And I think that it's probably one of those things where there's a lot of, you know, the the origin is uh, complex. And so there's probably a lot of elements that play into it. And I could definitely see, you know, actors being purged from Rome as being an early uh, Mm -hmm. cause for the whole wandering minstrel trope. Yeah. And we're going to get into some more complex Mm -hmm. stuff now, actually, uh, when we start talking about jesters themselves. So, by the way, Mm -hmm. jesters, although they were not called that, were common in China and other parts of Asia. They were actors first and foremost, but they mostly had other talents from physical gymnastic abilities Mm -hmm. to wit and humor, etc. Dance, singing, blah, 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 right? Yeah. And that's kind of what is the defining characteristic of a jester. Okay. Is it they're like a talented entertainer and they're, you know... It's like a singular entertainer that's just an entertainer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some other parts to them about like their nature and relationship to their employer. Uh-huh. But but yeah, their their multifaceted talents is usually a big part. Okay. And that's pretty worldwide. Uh, and actually like across time and space, you know? Mm-hmm. This concept of this kind of entertainer. Right. Yeah. And so I I do believe that like the Chinese jesters in particular did influence the European jesters, but worldwide jesters mm-hmm. is just a thing. Okay. Yeah. So again, jesters are kind of nuanced, which makes sense because we are talking about a huge breadth of time and space. Okay. But there seems to be three main categories of jester. So we have the professional jester. Okay. These folks tended to be real talented in a number of entertainment skills. Like we were talking about dancing, juggling, storytelling, joke telling. But they were usually not just a single court jester. Okay. Usually they had... Usually they were like a traveling court jester. Right, like a little troop. And they would... They would they would go from like home to home, from court to court, mm-hmm. or they would have another job. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. You know, because like they weren't always holding court, right? So I'm just a jester so they'd be on like the off days. The, 
animal caretaker and then also the jester or whatever. Um, Also, the concept of the bard. Oh, yes. So, like, literally the the battle entertainer. Oh, that's what a bard is? Isn't it someone who entertains for battle? Or uses battle as entertainment? I mean, a bard is a many things. Uh, There's a lot of definitions of bard because, like, bard, jack of all trade, master of none, is, like, the most common parlance of it but like if you think D &D classes Mm -hmm. you know they're all technically battle ready classes (laughs) bard is one of the classes right but but their thing is being an entertainer yeah and but like bard on the battlefield was a thing like playing music on the battlefield was a thing that's so nuts to me yeah well because like it would hype you up yeah like think about that playing drums, like, play, like on um, the battlefield. So yeah, well, in Mad Max, mm-hmm. do you remember? Yeah, Mad oh, Max I remember that. I know exactly what you're talking about. How there was there's the like, polecat drummers and then the fucking like guitarist. Yep. Like that's such a actual. I think wasn't thing. the drummer down low, and then the guitarists were like on those weird suspended wires, like bouncing around. Like there was a guitarist on the weird suspended wires, and then I think there was a bunch of drummers. Okay, yeah. Either way, I remember. I know exactly what you're talking about. The yeah, in the heat of battle, being driven on these giant vehicles, like battle musicians. Yeah, but like you know, in in actual proper yield battles, having like drummers and and instrumentalists and and singers and singing was a part of battle because it would help your troops it would help the morale yeah that makes sense that makes total sense and a lot of times jesters would actually be employed as a battle bard battle bard (laughs) battle bard and and so like they would they would sing songs and that sort of thing play instruments but they'd also tell jokes to kind of like chill the troops out or they'd tell jokes like uh think of the concept of like a sports game Mm -hmm. where you like are yelling at the other team and being like you fucking suck yeah yeah that was their job that's our job. Yeah. <laughs> you fucking suck. Cat calling the other team. Just like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like bad mouthing real loud. So so that was not an uncommon that was just an interesting thing mm-hmm. that I learned about, you know, daily life of court justice. The battle bard. Was that yeah, a lot of them played battle bard. <laughs> <laughs> you have sunk my battle bard. <laughs> <laughs> excellent sorry <laughs> that wasn't that funny <laughs> what else was i thinking oh yeah okay so so the next kind of jester was uh odd folk i don't like how you said that odd folk odd, i mean i yeah i said it because it is kind of a shitty category uh-huh so they essentially wealthy families mm-hmm. would adopt disabled people. Mm. I don't like where this so, is going. Yeah, usually it was mentally disabled. So like um having schizophrenia, having epilepsy or most commonly having an intellectual disability. Mm. You know, they'd adopt the family dullard. Uh because really poor people couldn't afford to keep care of a somebody who couldn't mentally take care of disabled themselves. person exactly yeah um and they'd adopt them as an act of charity but they would essentially keep them as something of a family pet uh. they'd be like haha this person's so funny 
Oh, that's upsetting. Which is just I mean, big ick. that's kind of better, I guess, than, like, being murdered. Because nobody right, wants to. Than being or murdered. Or starving to death or whatever on your own. Well, that said, a lot of times when the family would get bored of the quote-unquote family pet, the person would end up as a beggar. Well, that's sad. You know? They'd live out the end of their days as, like, a homeless, unable to take care of themselves street person. Oh, that's so sad. You know? So so that's that's why I said it the way I did, is because it's a pretty shitty category. Yeah, it's a category worth saying that way. Okay. It's absolutely one of the kinds of jesters. Physical abnormalities were actually not necessarily the thing that was the disability that they were adopted for. They might have physical abnormalities. But essentially, physical abnormalities were common among professional jesters as well. Okay. So, you know, everything from, like, dwarfism to hunchbacks to just being weirdly long and lanky. Yeah. You'd get professional dwarf... Professional dwarves. <laughs> Professional dwarves. <laughs> Shit. I only work with professional, professional dwarves. Thank you very much. Oh, damn it. <sighs> I'm mad at me. <laughs> but words in English. Oh, yeah. So professional jesters would be, you know, dwarves. Mm-hmm. And they'd be also, like, great swordsmen. Cool. And, uh, you know, well, I guess if they're hanging out at court all the time, like, you'd probably Hell yeah. been like, I mean, they're just like a proper folk. Yeah. You know, being physically disabled doesn't mean you can't, like, take care of your shit. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it, does it does if you're in medieval Europe. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> I don't know if that's accurate for the time and place in which our story occurs. Yeah. But, but I mean, essentially, physical abnormality was not necessarily the disability that yeah, I get a you. wealthy family would adopt you for because sometimes shit just happened. Were actually, fine. Yeah, and you could become a professional jester. So then there was also amateurs. These were just everyday folks with everyday lives mm-hmm. who would don the jester guise for special events. Okay, this was somewhat common in like. I believe France, they'd have like, big, gotta eat. you know, well, and, and they'd have like big <laughs> uh, festivals and shit where, you know, you just need a bunch of entertainment. Yeah. And so locals from the community would go in and put their performance hat on. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and that was a pretty common form of gesturing back in the day. But usually when we're talking about, like, medieval and renaissance jesters, which is kind of what we think about when we talk about the word, Mm -hmm. we're talking about the professional jester, TM. Okay. Professional jester. Yeah. TM. So, the role in court and society. Mm, Yes, society. (laughs) The jester's purpose was to entertain. Mm Mm-hmm. But also to function as advisor and critic to their employer. Oh, no. That sounds like a dangerous line to walk. Yeah. So their superpower was providing criticism hidden within humor. Mm -hmm. That was their superpower. And this trope was really solidified by Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. This clever fool, this witty fool. His comedies would have a fool who was a huge bumbling idiot and or a drunk. Yep. 
but would regularly comment on these like meta level hot takes. Right. Just always had something way poignant to say. Just slide mm-hmm. in, just you know, drop a he bomb was and such an idiot. And he would say idiotic things, and then he'd randomly say like the smartest thing that's been said in the entire play so far. Right. I love that. You know? Mm-hmm. And that's that's like this trope existed, but Shakespeare was like, hey, this trope. Right. And that's kind of, that's actually yeah. kind of fun too, because I think that's a trope that uh, not, it wasn't necessarily exemplified by the characters Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in Hamlet, but in the movie Rosencrantz and <laughs> Guildenstern are dead that I'm all stoked about. Uh, yeah. That's exactly what's going on. Is yeah. I actually kind of figured. They're kind of dumb, but very mm-hmm. clever and profound, but also d- kind of yep. dumb. Yeah. And that was kind of the whole idea with a jester is that they were able to say things that nobody else could because of the neutered nature of their person. Right. They didn't have they any were authority or power, so mm-hmm. they can say whatever they want because nobody's going to listen to them. Sounds kind of like nihilism. Yeah. But... At the same time, it was actually in the king or ruler or employer's best interest to listen to their jester because they were the only person that could say a critical thing without it being potentially a dangerous thing to the person. Right, right. They had the that they had that privilege there in that position where they were the one who it was societally okay for them to say something. So if they were saying something, they should probably listen. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So quick aside for like costume style purpose, etc. Mm-hmm. Right. So the classic image of the loudly colored and belled Harlequin jester was actually usually the amateur jesters. Okay. However, professional jesters did wear odd clothing. Okay. You know, they they wore brightly colored and silly looking clothes uh, because they were performers. Right. They're still performers. They they were still performers and they were still usually comedians. And so looking silly and behaving silly was part of their gig. Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially, jesters looked strange. They dressed strange. They behaved strange. Mm -hmm. And they were generally the only people given permission to break societal rules. I really, I, I really like that a lot. And I just think it's so fun. I, I, I know I'm just like nerding out hard and connecting this to everything I've done today. But like, it fits. It fits shockingly well. And I was trying earlier to find uh, this specific quote. And I can't find which uh, source site it was on. But it basically talked about how... <sighs> So it was, one of them I shared with you earlier kind of addressed it, but the like the freedom that comes from realizing nothing matters and the like genuine right. joy that brings you and the humor in that. Mm-hmm. It just fits. Absurdist so, nihilistic humor. Yeah, exactly. It just fits so well. And you can see how I think, again, like difficult or politically tumultuous times, I think sort of brings that out in people because uh, you do have to find a way to get by and you do have to yeah. find a way to cope with just like the level of bullshit that's happening all around you at all times whether you're like Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know middle of the totem pole in the dark ages or whether you're bottom of the totem pole now you have to find a way to cope (laughs) and 
yeah, those people that are just able to go, you know what? Hands off. And like to truly live like a jester, you know, just hands off the Mm -hmm. wheel, just being funny and weird or like traveling minstrels and stuff. Like that's nuts. Mm -hmm. Like the level of fucks you have to not give in order to (laughs) be the person who's going to tell the king like what they're doing wrong. Yeah. And, and we'll get a little bit into that's crazy. I guess the person behind that yeah. uh in our next episode. Cool. But I mean it the the concept of the the trope itself, the concept of the 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 concept mm-hmm. itself kind of gets back into this like why are clowns scary? What the fuck with this weird horror trope? Yeah. Because there's something really, really powerful and cool and beautiful and interesting and neat about the magic of comedy. You know, mm-hmm. you can say some really crazy shit and really fucked up shit, yeah. but also kind of mend the wound as you mm-hmm. say it. Mm-hmm. But also there's something really sinister to lessening the blow of how awful the world can be, you know? Like, we use all of this Dadaist humor to cope, but we also kind of use it to ignore. Yeah. But that's just kind of me dealing with my modern problems. I don't know if that has anything to do with the jester itself. Right, I see what you're getting at. I'm going to have to ruminate on that one, because I feel like... Yeah. I don't really feel like it's that... Uh, inherently dastardly of a deed to you know that that comedic relief i don't feel like that's the problem necessarily i don't feel like that's necessarily the dark side of comedy or the unsettling side of the jester or the clown i i don't feel like that's because it almost feels like a sacrilege i think the bringing it up at all is what makes it sinister right i get what you're saying because it's still a little bit of that wound with the humor Mm-hmm. It's still a little yeah. bit of that. Oh, oh, that's funny because it hurts, you asshole. Yeah. I mean, basically, they're they're like the harbinger. Mm-hmm. They're like the guy screaming about the end times, yep. but they're funny, right? You know, and the guy screaming about the end times is also fucking terrifying. Yeah, yeah. You know, I get exactly. the harbinger is supposed to be terrifying, right? That's the whole point of his. Trope. Well, and I think that's I guess <laughs> that's what gets to it on a deeper level, right? Is that's the humor is often what's able to cut through the rest of the noise and actually be heard. And then mm-hmm. you realize what you heard and you're like, Oh, that's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Dark, dark humor is essentially what we're getting at yeah. is that a lot of this is dark humor. Yeah. Everything so, is dark humor anymore. Really? Everything is dark humor. Everything is dark humor. The, the kind of interesting thing about jesters you know, because we're kind of tying this back to like, why are clowns scary? Uh-huh. And and we look at it retrospectively and we're like, yeah, that is kind of creepy and sinister. Yeah. But their public perspective perspective was actually really good. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So to royalty, they were considered loyal servants. They were way too lower class to be a risk to power. Uh-huh. So their candor was actually invaluable. I like, yep. They were the only person that could give honest advice and criticism to the royalty that they were to the king or to the lord or whatever Mm -hmm. and to the common man they were actually the advocate of the people 
as again, they were the only common folk who could speak candidly to their royal employee. Right. That's a pretty valuable position to be in, isn't it? So yeah, they were actually very, very well received by all public. So I... For the most part. I mean, I think this is a slightly different example, but I feel like it's a connection I want to make really quick to um, Mm -hmm. modern, like, political, comedic political commentators. Like... Trevor yeah. Noah, like John Oliver, like Samantha B, mm-hmm. um, where it feels very similar, where they're able to, you know, they can get away with saying stuff politically because they don't have a constituency. Mm-hmm. So they can talk candidly about politics because that's not actually risking. I mean, not like it's not actually risking anything for them. There's all, you know, there's always social fallout, but it's mm-hmm. not the same kind of like risk as some politician being politically candid. And politicians, mm-hmm. I mean, some of them do still choose to get butthurt, but, you know, it's something, It's it seems to be that same kind of trade-off where it's like, okay, you're outside of my field, so even if I might not like what you say, it's not really that threatening. And yeah. as far as, like, the general public is concerned, you're like, okay, like, you, you know, I'm not taking a risk when you say these things, but you kind of have a better perspective of where I'm coming from. So, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah. I guess I just too, I think that as far as that kind of like uh, truthsomeness and breaking of societal norms being unsettling and scary, I think it's because it does lift up, it lifts up the rug. Not only Mm -hmm. does it point out things you don't want to look at, but it also reminds you that there is a different way to see and experience things and to behave. And so then that makes Mm -hmm. you question the entire like structure of the rules you've been following. When somebody's behaving yeah. so far outside of those norms and those expectations, I think it can cause a kind of like to to a maybe you know more minor extent some sort of like existential crisis where you're just like, that's people can you can be that way. <laughs> I- <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a valid that's a valid perspective, and also like there's there's definitely something to just the dissonance that mm-hmm. facing reality brings, right. And cognitive dissonance is also of, scary and stressful. Mm-hmm. And 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 part of like the nature of jesters and clowns and comedians and etc. is to you know funhouse mirror. Mm-hmm. You know you're supposed to look at your reality and be like, ah, oh, fuck. Yeah. And that's scary. Yeah, that is scary. It's totally. It's it's at the very least unsettling. Mm-hmm. Which at least opens you up to being scared. Right. Well, I think that's t- there's two sides of that coin, right? There's there's the peering under the rug and questioning those things and stepping outside of the norms out of intention. And then I, I do. For me, clowns always end up relating back to, when I think about scary clowns, it, uh, the, the out of, con- or the not in control or out of control. Mm-hmm. Like, you're outside of the societal norms, not because you're making mm-hmm. a conscious decision to be there, but because you are fucking insane. Yeah. And because you're insane and unstable and outside of societal norms and then doing these Mm -hmm. funny things, those funny things become less funny and become more unsettling and scary. Yeah. And I suppose I could have brought in more of the uh, disabled concept of jesters in this episode to kind of bring more of that in because that is, I mean, while I do hate the pejorative and stigmatized nature of mental illness and the perspective of society on that 
it's not a thing that you can ignore when you're talking about fear. Well, like yeah. it is absolutely a stigma that needs to be ended. But to end a stigma, you must first understand well, why it is and stigmatized. I think it's in the important first place. to recognize the difference between a more biological, visceral fear response and what is societally acceptable. Like, I don't think you know. It's it's mm-hmm. a very uh, I want to say human thing, but like animal thing, humans included, to have a fear and or disgust response to members of our species that have a noticeable disability. Because when you don't have like a developed society, that's just how things are, right? Animals destroy each other when they're not the same. And I'm not saying that's okay at all. It's not. But I'm just saying, I think that there's like a biological uh, root for that kind of fear of the abnormal. And that definitely Mm -hmm. needs to be something that's not fostered on a societal level. But I don't think it's inherently like politically incorrect to recognize it as a component of fear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's back to like, if you're going to end the stigma of something, you have to first understand why there is a stigma. Mm -hmm. You can't just say end the stigma. Right. And you can't just like... You know, even if people are being assholes, you can't get anywhere if you invalidate your feelings or their feelings. Yeah. You know, you have to be like, look, I can see why this would make you uncomfortable. Here's why you need to act better. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, as people that want to be good human beings, we don't support stigmatizing mental illness. Mm-mm. And as people that have mental illnesses. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'm over here, you know, counting up my what i think is wrong with my brain and i'm like running out of fingers but like i still recognize that like there is a natural fear response to people behaving strangely right. again uh, because again we're afraid of the unknown well, we're cult we're we're community-based creatures you know we're pack animals mm-hmm. so one whatever that norm is anytime someone behaves outside of it whether that's because of you know, something it they signifies that there may be a dangerous something, something. Yeah. And it's unknown. Yeah. Right. When it's unknown, yeah. why? I think this is a really actually solid way to wrap this up. When it's unknown, why an individual is behaving outside of the societal or pack norms or whatever, it's scary. Yeah. When you don't know yeah. why they're acting different from everybody else, mm-hmm. whether or not what they're doing is funny, there's a fear. Yeah. And I mean, you can't separate the the fact that mental illness has been used as a component to horror forever. Well, as a component to horror and comedy, as we were just discussing for like True. ever. Yeah, exactly. Right? From Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Like laughing at what is different and also being afraid of what is different. Are two sides of the same coin? Totally. Mm-hmm. Because human emotion is complex and nuanced. I just barely watched the first Batman with Michael Keaton. And if you watch... (laughs) Oh my god, what's his name? Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson playing the Joker. He goes back and forth from being extremely comedic in a way that's like, oh my god, like, you're you're being manic. Like, what's going on? To being legitimately, like, terrifying and murdery. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, uh, again, part part of the nature of, like, why clowns are scary Mm -hmm. that that we've sort of talked about before is the 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 unpredictability yeah you don't know if it's going to be a threat 
of somebody who's friendly one minute and then violent the next. Yeah. And obviously you would hope that clowns are not doing that. But when you don't know what to expect. Well, and when they have face makeup on, you don't know who they are. Right. Not only do mm-hmm. you, it might be a stranger. Like and it if, blocks their physical facial expo- Right. Not only might it be somewhere where some you're going to only encounter strangers, like if you go to the carnival or the circus or something, but then they have face paint on and they're acting outside of mm-hmm. the societal norms. So you're like, you're acting weird. I don't know who you are. And you're in disguise. That's yeah. terrifying. Well, and also, I think, again, we talked about this last episode, how fucking terrifying it would be to just sort of see a clown. Yes. Outside of the circus. Clowns without context are not acceptable. Clowns out of context are not acceptable. No out of context clowns. All right, shall we wrap this no up? Out of context clowns. Yeah, let's wrap this up. What are we gonna say as our end of thing? I would like to thank everybody for listening. And if you want to support the show, we would love if you could rate and review us on iTunes or whatever you're review. listening to us on. And you could follow us on social media. We're at Palm Pitch Pod for all of the things. Yep. You could throw a little money our way through Patreon or coffee if you want a one-time donation. Just a, just a little spare change, man. We are looking into doing some more mini-sodes that Ooh. I have drummed up, which would be a lot of fun and would definitely be Patreon exclusive because, you know. Everyone likes exclusivity. Because people people like special something-somethings. Just for you, not for anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Not for you, anybody else. Just for you. <laughs> oh god! And we're very strange. Yeah. And and that us. Yeah. So social media, uh, plead for money. Thanking you for listening. I think that's yeah. it. Right. That's plead it. For money. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the concern about my well-being and understanding yes. about my Thanks puppy. Thanks for being good to my sunshine. She's special lady and she sad right now because obvious reasons. Obvious reasons, yes. Obvious reasons. And yeah, that it. Oh, I was gonna give a little bit of something something. So next this week was like so fucking light and fluffy, and it feels like we're pulling p- horror out of nothing, at least a little bit, because we're like, let's talk about history. And it's sinister because we said so. <laughs> I promise that the next episodes so. <laughs> from from this point forward will definitely be going into the darker sides of things so tune in for that yes tune in for that we promise much more darkness much more darkness in, in your future we are the worst fortune tellers <laughs> <laughs> i see only blackness i see only blackness Oh man. Okay. okay. That yeah, it? That's it. I'm that gonna it. stop. All right. Okay, wait. wait. Kayla, love bye. you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>